You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning for the third or fourth time, and welcome again, yet again, to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time, if this is your 500th time at Grace Community Church, welcome. So glad you are here to worship with us this morning. As has already been mentioned, be praying for those who will be on the way home today on the road, uh, coming back from TBR, from the family retreat up there. Um, I'm just always grateful for the the worship team. Uh, Really appreciate all the effort they put into what they do. They, They seek to do their very best. For the Lord, it's been a long week for David and Sarah. They've been conferencing and graduations and weddings, and it's been a long, long week. Uh, But a very blessed and full week. Uh, Eric uh, Bauman and and Alexandra Streb were married yesterday up in Raleigh. That was a blessed time for a lot of us who were there. David graduated yesterday morning. Dr. Uh, David. We're going to have to call Dr. David McMullen now. So... Uh, And he expects it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But um, it's been a great week. And for those of you who are here, and I know several of you are here for the first time. So let me just say uh, quickly that we are in a series. Have have we lost our, I guess we've lost our feed, haven't we? In a series uh, titled Engage the World with the Gospel. It's the third part, uh, third peg of our purpose statement here at at Grace. Exalt the Lord, establish believers, engage the world with the gospel. Uh, Today's message is titled About God. Let me tell you about God. We've gone through a whole lot over these last seven, eight months about thinking about evangelism and outreach. And this morning we're going to think about how to witness to those who are fairly intelligent and somewhat resistant by nature to the gospel. This past week, I I read a blog on the Gospel Coalition written by Kevin DeYoung talking about a book that he had uh, recently read. And so here's what he said about his find. Quote, in the death of expertise, the campaign against established knowledge and why it matters, Tom Nichols, professor at U.S. War, Uh, Naval War College and a former aide in the Senate argues that the United States is now a country obsessed with the worship of its own ignorance. I think most of us would agree with that. We are obsessed with the worship of our own ignorance. Of course, uh, Kevin says, there is nothing new about ignorance or indifference. Most people, myself included, know little about almost everything. What's new is the positive hostility we seem to have toward admitting our ignorance and listening to experts. Never have so many people had so much access to so much knowledge, Nichols writes, and yet have been so resistant to learning everything. Allison and I were talking yesterday about what a great Dr. David McMullen is going to be. Because, you know, uh, he's, he's very open. He's, he's in home group with a bunch of old people, so he hears about our complaints. And, 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 and he's very open to listening to us, but when we just don't know what we're talking about, he says, nah, nah, it's just not right. You know, and, and, and you believe it. But not many people believe it when they're told that they're wrong about anything. Or when you or someone says, well, there's another way of looking at that. There's no other way of looking at that. And if you don't believe like I believe, you're crazy. Tim Metz and I used to speak often of our dismay over the dearth of critical thinking skills and the lack of intellectual curiosity and intellectual honesty in our day. That would imply, of course, that Tim and I were confident of our own erudition and one may dispute the accuracy of that assessment, but we were confident anyway. And so we were, of course, qualified to talk about how nobody else could think as well as we could think. Today we find ourselves in Acts 17, where the Apostle Paul witnessed to some of the smartest people alive in his day. Now, if you have good critical thinking skills, 
you're going to say, wait a minute, didn't you introduce this message by saying people don't know nearly as much as they think they do in our day, and yet now we're going to learn how to witness to smart people. Well, see, there's very little difference between people who are really smart and, and people who think they're really smart. You know what I'm saying? The, who know a lot and people who think that they know a lot. And that's most of us. Uh, the text today is Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. You actually have to find it in your Bibles today since it's not going to be on the screen, apparently. And in keeping with our tradition, oh man, just in time. <laughs> in keeping with our tradition, uh, we will stand for the reading of Scripture. I'm going to read the first two verses, if you would please stand. Just the first two verses of our text, it's Acts 17, 16 to 34. We're just going to read these two that set up all that will follow uh, in our reading. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Let's pray. Father, um, we are grateful that no matter what our state of anything, Lord, how much we have, how much we don't have, how much we know, how much we don't know, the gospel is relevant to every single one of us. Lord, um, not all of us, not many of us, maybe not any of us are going to be able to argue with uh, truly intelligent people like Paul did. But, but there are principles that we find in this text, Lord, that help us to interact with all kinds of people. So, Lord, as we, as we have this heart and desire to share this incredibly good news... To everyone, I pray that you would encourage our hearts about the power of the gospel to save some. Maybe not many, but to save some. We're thankful that you have brought us into your family. We're thankful for life in Christ. We pray that as we share Jesus, that life might be evident in our hearts and in our lives, our actions, our words, and everything about us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks and be seated. Well, there is much ground to cover, so we're just going to jump right in at verse 16. Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy at Athens, and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city that was full of idols. So we reason in the synagogue and with the Jews and the devout persons. Now, you may recall the devout persons are what we used to call or, or the, these are the people who are called the righteous Gentiles. They were Gentiles who had grown up in this pagan world and the Jewish nation had been dispersed, you know, some six, five, six hundred years earlier. And, and, and they established synagogues all over what by the time Paul uh, was preaching was the Roman Empire. And so Paul would go in and these righteous Gentiles who had been attracted to the morality that they found in the synagogues and amongst the Jewish nation that was so such a contrast to the, to the wickedness of the, of, 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 of the idolatry and the pagan lifestyle all around them. Uh, those people were just hungry to hear the gospel. And it was many of them who first converted to Christianity. So Paul would go into the synagogues and he would talk with them. But now in Athens, he's in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. In the marketplace in Athens, people would stand up and they would preach. They would give their uh, philosophical arguments. In Corinth, I didn't have time to talk about this last week when we were in 1 Corinthians 9. Corinth was just down the road from Athens a little bit. And people would charge money. It's just like our motivational speakers today. Fill up auditoriums and coliseums, not coliseums usually, but fill up uh, pretty big um, 
Well, Coliseum's not stadium. Well, you know what I'm trying to say. Basketball arenas. There you go. They'll fill them up. And, and, and just to hear people talk about how to think positively. Well, that kind of was going on in that day. And Paul just took his place. He didn't charge anybody. In fact, that's what he had said in Corinth. I wouldn't dare charge for that. I'm preaching the good news, the gospel. And people uh, heard and were impressed. Athens is a beautiful city. I can only imagine how beautiful it was in the first century. Um, but Paul was not struck by the beauty of the city. He saw these idols, he saw these temples and people going in to worship and gods and statues that were set up and how people would take care of these idols and they would put food down before them. And his spirit was provoked the Greek word used to describe Paul's spirit is paroxuma. The same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, Septuagint, of Isaiah 65, verses 2 and 3. And it described God's reaction to idolatry. And it was a, it was a mixture, it was a complex mixture of deep anger and deep sorrow. God was angry over sin, and yet he felt great compassion for the people who were trapped by sin. And that was Paul's feeling as he went to, to, to Athens and he saw the idolatry of the people. How do you see cities and the people who live in those cities? If you grew up in a rural area, possibly you've spent a lot of your life, you've expended a lot of energy in your life trying to get away from that. You know, you want to get close to a city. Or you may be the exact opposite. You're in the city and you want to get out of the city. Look, the city's going to catch us here sooner or later. You may think you're in the middle of nowhere, but you're not. It's going to, it's, Fayetteville and Raleigh are going to meet right here, right on this corner. I think on 210 and Hornet Central Road. I don't know about you, but I love cities. I, I would rather go. Look, when I, people say, what have you seen in America? I start talking about the cities. They say, you ever been to the Grand Canyon? I'm like, uh, no. You ever been uh, to, to Yellowstone, Glacier Park? I'm like, uh, no. But I've seen Chicago and Los Angeles and San Francisco. I love to be in the cities. I fear, though, that my heart is just not broken over the idolatry that is so prevalent in such cities. Lord, give us a heart, the heart that you had for people. It's not that when Paul saw the idolatry, he started breathing out fiery judgment as people were worshiping idols, but verse 17 tells us that Paul reasoned with the people that he encountered in the marketplace. And we're told here that he preached about the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, both in the synagogue and in the marketplace. I am certain, though, that the sermon he preached in the synagogue would sound far different than what he would preach on the street corner in Athens, in, in, in the marketplace. It, it's likely that in addition to the preaching, Paul had a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. Verse 18 tells us that Paul's preaching and his conversations made quite an impression on his listeners. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Epicureans believed in a very personal God, but... But he was one that was remote. And, and, and so he, he really didn't enter into the affairs of mankind. And the Epicurean philosophy was, hey, life's a party. The ultimate pursuit in life is for you to feel good about whatever you're doing. Just be true to yourself. Thank goodness that doesn't exist in our day. But it did in that day. Um, Stoics, on the other side of the coin, um, saw God as a force, not a personal God at all, 
But even so, the notion of duty so consumed them that they weren't terribly happy people. In Paul's presentation of the hope that is in the gospel, Tim Keller says that Paul challenged Epicureans not to make an idol of pleasure, and he told Stoics not to make an idol of duty. The life that God has designed for us is somewhere in the middle. It's not do whatever you want to do, nor is it don't do anything you want to do. God designed this life for us to enjoy it. And all of the good things that come in life, the foods that we eat. And I I know, I, I know we enjoy things that nobody in all of history enjoyed, just ordinary people like we are. And yet God said, I have created these things for you. Enjoy them, but don't worship them, nor worship the lack of them. And worship the idea, because all it's either, either extreme is all about me. You may think, no, duty is not. It's about serving other people. No, oftentimes duty can be about me. Look at me. Look at how, how careful I am about the things that I do and don't do. Whatever Paul said, it was enough for him to receive an invitation to the renowned council that met on Mars Hill at the Areopagus. Uh, The next verse gives us a bit of an indication of what went on in those august halls of knowledge and learning. Limited learning, though it was much like today. Verse 19, "And, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Does that not remind you of our day? Look, those of you who are older, you said Jesus, you said gospel. And people were very familiar with that language. You start talking about anything that's biblically directed, it's far less familiar To the next generation. It's just foreign to their ears. And becoming increasingly so in our time. The Greeks wanted to learn new things. We tend not so much to want to learn new information. Or facts to confuse or contradict that. Of which we are already convinced. Although it turns out they were the same way. It's just human nature. We believe something, we want to confirm it, and most of us want everybody else to believe it to affirm and confirm what we already believe. In the earlier days of Greece's power, the Areopagus housed the most respected judicial court of the day. By the first century, it was no longer a court, but it was more a council that guarded the city's religion, morality, and education. And those who debated that the Areopagus were highly regarded as both intelligent and influential. It was an honor for Paul to be invited to speak to this group. And Paul was qualified to be on the same level as the rest of these guys. He was the equal of all of them intellectually. But he had far more than knowledge to share uh, with these people. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way, (coughs) excuse me, every way, (coughs) you are very religious. One of the things that (coughs) you should know about this speech and all the sermons in the book of Acts is that most likely we're only seeing representative portions of those sermons. It's not the whole thing is given here. So don't be leaving saying, you know, I wish our pastor preached as long as those guys did in Acts. I mean, they preached a lot longer than than they did in Acts. Uh, But this is what is recorded. So this was undoubtedly, though, his introduction. And Paul began... With a compliment, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. They would have taken this as quite a compliment. Not many people are able to resist a compliment unless they feel your compliment is nothing more than gratuitous flattery. Verse 23. 
For, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Look, you can't read this without recognizing this is a brilliant segue into a gospel presentation. You are so religious that you worship an unknown God just to make sure you got all of your bases covered. Good news. I'm here to tell you about this God. He's the very one I want you to know about. Let me tell you <coughs> about God. Verse 24. The Lord who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. <clears throat> Paul begins his gospel presentation by describing God's sovereign power is seen in creation. This is very, again, this is instructive for us. Uh, I mentioned last week that in August we're going to be having a time where we get together and talk about different methods of witnessing, different ways of sharing the gospel with people. And all of this time we've not gone through any particular program or way in which the gospel is shared because you really don't find it much of anywhere in scripture. This is a brilliant model though for those who don't know much about God. In olden days when we would give the Roman road or the the um, evangelism explosion, when we would share those things with people, they already had a, a basic understanding of God so we could start with sins. Now it's a good idea to start with creation, just like Paul did in this defense of the gospel. He started with the, with the sovereign Lord creating the universe. God doesn't live in temples such as the beautiful structures that dotted the hills of Athens. He doesn't need cleaning. He doesn't need food because he doesn't need anything. Yet, he consistently shows his love to mankind by giving us everything we need, including life and breath. I looked through a study that Tim Keller had done for Redeemer on the book of Acts. We went through that in our home group several years ago when we went through the gospel or the, the book of Acts. And... So there were several little things that Keller said that were quite meaningful, especially when you think Keller ministers to um, intellectuals in New York City, up there in New York City. And Keller reminds us from Paul's sermon that God cannot be domesticated, placated, or manipulated like the idols. So don't even try. Because he's not beholden to us. We are made in his image, not the other way around. Look, people, it's not that people go into temples and bow down before idols, but we all have idols. One of my idols will come back on Sunday afternoon television at 1 o'clock in the fall. Football, NFL. And college football on Saturdays. I love football, but... People worship ideologies, they worship philosophies, they worship people who set all of these ideologies and philosophies. And they try to fashion a God that will be pleased with them. Once again, it's all the way back. Difference between theology of glory and a theology of the cross. Theology of glory, I'm trying to make myself acceptable to God. And deep down, none, we all know that we can't do that. So we try to find ways of saying, well, okay, I think God is pleased with this. So this is what I'm going to do with everything in me. Or a theology of the cross where God comes down to us and meets us where we are. Verse 26. And he made from one nation, or excuse me, from one man, every nation of mankind. To live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. 
God is sovereign, placing all people when and where he determines. And we cannot know him unless he makes himself known. And yet, don't you sense the longing that in, in most hearts that people have to know God? We all came from one man, Paul said. One man, Adam. And Adam, of course, was created by God. But when Adam fell, we lost our connection with God. And now we're left in the dark and, and, and somehow people are, are trying to feel their way to make him. And they, they, they get hold of something and it's like, okay, this is God. I think this is God. I'm just going to stay right here because I'm comfortable here. And I don't want to have to keep feeling out there in the dark. Or maybe they just have given up. I can't, I can't do it, so I'm just going to give up. Well, good news. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. So now, if you haven't already been aware of it, we enter deep waters. Paul displays an impressive knowledge of Greek writers and poets. The first quote, in him we live and move and have our being. Would you all agree with that? In God, in, the, in, in Yahweh, in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we live and move and have our being. Absolutely, we, we would agree with that. It was from a hymn. To Zeus by Epimenides of Crete. And Paul said, look, you've got the right idea. But your knowledge, your, your understanding of God is incomplete. The second quote is from the Stoic poet, Aratus, who lived in the 3rd century B.C. Do you think... Let me ask you this. Do you think the council members were more likely or less likely to listen to Paul when he is speaking directly to the Epicureans and to the Stoics by something that their own poets said? I'm going with that they're more interested, that they're more willing to listen to him because he was able to find points of identification and talk about God. You absolutely do not have to quote Greek poets if you're going to witness to people today. I can assure you of that. But if you are able to quote secular strains of thought, you, you, you understand what's going on in the world, or you, you're, you're familiar with the arts, whatever, use that to interact with people who don't know Christ. Establish common ground where you can as you prepare to share the gospel. But sooner or later, just like Paul moves here, you have to get to the serious doctrine and the topic of judgment. Notice he doesn't shy away from the hard truths that these men need to hear. Verses 29 to 31. <clears throat> Being then God's offspring, we're all created by God. We ought not to think... That the divine being who created us is like gold or silver or stone or some positive energy in the universe or some great thought about how to improve your life. He is not an image or even an idea formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance... God overlooked in the past, he's saying. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. And he will judge it in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the end of Paul's sermon, most likely because he was cut off by the council members. Why? Some have suggested that Paul preached out of sequence. He didn't talk about the death of Christ. He just went straight to the resurrection and, 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 and they cut him off. Remember though, Luke's record of the sermon preached in Acts, 
This could just be a summary, and he didn't include that. Certainly, we are told earlier that Paul preached Jesus and the resurrection in the marketplace. He would have told all about the Messiah, the need for a Messiah, and this different Messiah than people expected. One who came to die for the sins of people. Most likely, Paul was silenced because it seemed like a good chance to get in and stop this presentation that spoke of judgment. And that was getting a little close to the bone, as we say, down under. Heard Allison say that many times. That's a little close to the bone, don't you think? Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I, I think I can confidently say this is not Gina Damaris that he's talking about. But we know that a woman named Damaris was one of the believers. There's every indication when you read in Acts, when you read on a little bit to the next chapter, that Paul left Athens a discouraged man. He went into Corinth right afterwards, and the Lord came and encouraged him there. And he provided a beautiful uh, set of friends for him to be with. And the Lord said, Paul, stay right here in Corinth. There are many people that are mine. You just need to find them and witness to them, and they will come to me. So, when you think about what Paul did at Mars Hill, was his presentation a success or not? The few conversions didn't come close to the numbers that he was typically <clears throat> destined to see when he preached at the synagogues. And all of these righteous Gentiles who were primed for the gospel heard and believed. So... Was he discouraged? Was it a success or was it a failure? It's helpful to recall what we learned from last week in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul acknowledged that not all will be saved, but some will. Look, this seems to be put here strategically in the book of Acts to tell us how to witness to those who are not really concerned about God at all in a church kind of a way. Intellectuals do not convert easily. Why? Why do you think it is? I mean, it's hard ground. Maybe they think they already know everything and they don't want to be confronted with the notion that there may be more to life, this life, than understanding what can they, they can see, verify, and codify in neatly wrapped categorical packages. In the 21st century... We carry unimaginable mountains of knowledge right there. Unimaginable. It's better than the ancient library at Alexandria. It's better than just about any library you could go to today. It's not as, it, it, it's, it's not as objective as you think it is. This phone knows what you want. This phone knows what you want when it's in your pocket. And you're just talking to other people, right? Am I right? Some of you have talked about things that you're interested in. And lo and behold, there it is on Amazon. Asking you. We know as much as anybody ever knew. And again, we are so ignorant of so many things and don't want to be told. I'm an expert on everything. This is who we're witnessing to today. The same people that were on Mars Hill. You may have to look to other subsections of society to find such deluded types who think they know everything. I, it seems, need only look in the mirror every morning and other times of the day when I'm forced to. No matter, Paul's brilliant gospel presentation in Acts 17, it's a helpful model for our witnessing to many who belong to this age, especially in our land. In our day when we seem to be a nation of people who know everything. So let's, let's think about this model. First, here's, here's 
the model put in a way that we can receive it and hopefully apply it. Ask God to give you a broken heart for all who don't know Jesus, including the religious, the idolatrous, and intellectuals. Over the last 50 to 60 years, uh, believers have become enamored of the world in ways that just wouldn't have characterized the church in the past. Well, not since Corinth anyway. Actually, Corinth, they were just like many church people are today. We want to just basically do the world in church. It's not they want to do church in the world. They want to do the world in church. We have sought rather desperately, it seems, for the world to affirm and embrace us. But when we long for the world to say, oh, you're so great, I just love you. Man, this, this Jesus you serve must be really cool because you're so cool. You're so this or that. And I want to listen to you. Please tell me the gospel. Look, it ignores the reality of future judgment. As wonderful as the good news is that we bring to people, it begins with judgment. It begins with a word of judgment. And if people, truly you're, you're more concerned about what the world thinks of you than how you relate with your brothers and sisters in Christ. As C.S. Lewis said, if God would just open our eyes for a moment and let us see people as they will be. They will be either like gods that could hardly, you can hardly stand the glare or the most hideous creatures imaginable. And we're all those hideous creatures until the Lord redeems us and saves us. And we need a broken heart for those people. No matter how smart they are, no matter how cool they are, no matter how together. We need a broken heart. We need eyes that see like God sees. Second, find points of interest and common ground with unbelievers. Look, even though we're not to be of the world, we need to know enough about what interests those who don't know Christ so that we can carry on semi-intelligent conversations with others. <clears throat> or maybe you, you know somebody who's really... If I know somebody... <coughs> that is an unbeliever who's really interested in movies and directors, that kind of thing, I say, David Calvert's a guy you need to talk to. You know, he, he would know a lot of these people. There are a lot of different places in life that we can identify with people. Um, even if you don't know a lot, just, just learn to ask good questions because in the same way that people can't resist a compliment, people love to talk about the things that interest them. And if you ask good questions, they want to be around you. I don't know what a good question is. Well, think about it just a little bit. You may be surprised at how much interest you have in, in things that interest other people. They don't have to be religious or non-religious. It could just be, you know, know somebody interested in meteorology? We've got some meteorologists in here. Point them to, Dave, uh, to Deb and Mike Moneypenny. Interested in chickens? Point him to Deb and Mike Moneypenny. <laughs> Interested in guns? Point him to Civil War guns? Point him to... Well, just any question, just point him to Mike and Deb. Enter, enter into the worlds of those whom God puts in your path. Third, know and love the gospel so much that people will want to hear from me. That's, that's what happened with Paul. He's in the marketplace, and they're like, man, this guy's really passionate about what he believes. Now, interesting, um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, okay, so I don't have the oratorical skills that some of the people have that typically stand up on those street corners and speak. There's nothing wrong with Paul's knowledge, <clears throat> with his presentation of the gospel. My goodness, he, he's the one who gives us any semblance of the order that happens in the gospel. But, but he... His passion somehow attracted enough people that they said, we want to hear more from this guy. He loves 
the gospel. And obviously we know that means he loves Jesus. And by the way, if you love Jesus and you remain committed to Jesus when life is hard for you. In this unstable world, people are going to look for you to provide a sense of stability when life goes all crazy for them. If they know that you love Jesus and they know that you love him so much that, that you'll endure the mocking and the, and the criticism. and When life gets tough, they'll know where to find you. Fourth. Affirm the beliefs of unbelievers where you are able. Now look, this may not feel comfortable for you. But it's quite helpful in your outreach efforts to avoid being so confrontational that you turn hearers off. What happened to Paul when he saw the idolatry? His spirit was provoked within him. Go back to Isaiah 65 verses 2 and 3 and you see how God was provoked. He was angry. And I'm sure there was some anger in Paul's heart. Remember, he'd been a Pharisee. He was not a guy that just was naturally comfortable walking into that world. But the compassion that he had so overwhelmed him that he found ways to affirm their beliefs. You're very religious. Look, you've even got an altar to the unknown God. Really? That's great. Let me tell you about this unknown. Find ways of affirming. My goodness, we give litmus tests for everything in our day. Well, what do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? And at any point, people will just walk away if you don't believe the right thing. Don't be like that. The gospel is so much more important than anything else. Find places where you can agree with people. Maybe it would be good practice for evangelism to extend grace toward those who differ from you politically, socially. Uh, They pull for different teams and you do whatever. Just extend grace to them. You don't have to use Greek poets like Paul did to indicate to your audience that they're on the right track and they're thinking about God, but they've got more ways. They've got a little bit ways to go. Encourage their interest and their movement toward God. Just like we encourage one another. Wherever we are in our lives, in our discipleship, our walk with Christ. When somebody says, oh, I just saw this the other day. Say, that's awesome. Not, uh, oh, really? You're just finding that out. Don't be like that with believers or unbelievers either. Encourage them wherever you can. Fifth. Move the conversation toward the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus in your gospel presentation. You cannot avoid the topic forever as you get to know those with whom you hope to share the gospel. At some point, you have to state that you believe that Jesus died for us and what that means. You have to believe that he rose from the dead and that not only affirms our salvation, his bodily resurrection, it also gives promise to our own bodily resurrection to eternal life when Jesus returns. Remember, as you present the gospel, you're going somewhere with this presentation, which leads to the next next thought. Be creative in calling people to a response to the gospel. Look, you don't have to say it. You don't have to just say, uh, okay, uh, Matt, are you ready now? You've heard the gospel. Are you ready to receive Christ? Would you like to pray with me? You don't have to do that. But in some way, you're constantly calling people. Look, Paul did it in this, in a very direct way when he said, look, in the past God overlooked sin, but it's time to repent now. Day of judgment is coming. We don't know when that day is. And all men everywhere need to repent, and he, he was bold in calling for repentance to these council members at Mars Hill. It's part of our message, and although God's judgment is the difficult part of the message, it allows for the gospel of hope to be shared. <clears throat> calling people not only to repentance, but to faith in Christ. Look, I, I don't... I, Repentance and faith go together. Now, we've talked over and over, and I've heard somebody talking about it this week, that 
Some people just grow up in the church and never remember a time. And I'm so happy for you that you don't ever remember a time, but you get the whole package. You understand it and you believe that you're a sinner. Then apart from Jesus' death on the cross, you're not going to heaven. And, and apart from a belief in that. But, but if you are interacting with adults who really haven't thought about Jesus or they've never thought about him at this level... There has to be repentance. Nobody, I, I just don't think you get saved by saying, oh, this sounds great. I think I'll believe that. You, you have to confront your sin. You have to acknowledge your sin and, 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 and confess it to the Lord. You don't have to weep. Some people weep, some don't. But, but you have to acknowledge it at a level that makes you thrilled to believe in Jesus Recognizing that his death on the cross was payment for your sin. So you don't have to say it like Paul said it. But if you're going to be faithful to, to, to outreach and to witnessing to people. You must be honest about the consequences of not believing the gospel. Now what happens is when we do that even indirectly. Often people will say something like, oh, so you're saying that if I don't do such and such, then I'm going to hell. Or if I do this, I'm going to hell. Look, one of the ways you can respond is to say something like, no. What I'm saying is, Scripture teaches us that all of us are under condemnation. And unless something happens to move us from this place of being under condemnation to this place of being blessed and, and not under condemnation, we all are doomed it doesn't matter how good, how bad. Oh, so what you're saying is that what I'm doing <clears throat> is sin. Do I have to give up my lifestyle in order to be a Christian? Look, we have to be willing to lay aside anything that stands between us and God. That doesn't mean we're never going to sin again. We're going to be tempted maybe all of our lives. But I can't explain this to you, but you have to believe this by faith. When you trust Jesus Christ, he gives you a new heart. He gives you new desires. It doesn't mean that you're not tempted. But he makes you want to be more like him. And one of these days, we're going to be like him if we believe. You get the idea. The conversation could go on for a while and it's never going to be neat and like it is. But look, my cousin a year before I trusted Christ, right after I'd been arrested for, for drugs... For public intoxication uh, down in South Carolina. I, I, I came home and he came over and tried to witness to me. I cussed him like you could not believe. I used every word I could trying to shock him. It was a year later <laughs> that I trusted Christ just before I got out of high school. People may respond in very negative ways. And so often when they do respond in negative ways, the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts and lives and they're resisting every, with everything in them. Don't be discouraged. Which is the segue to the last point. Thank God for those who do believe while guarding against the discouragement of Satan when many reject Jesus. In our day, and I, it's really not different from any other day, I don't suppose, we equate success with numbers and growth. When Christianity is easy, when we start sharing what we believe about Scripture or what that we believe Scripture is designed to make people feel good about themselves or to help them improve themselves, it's not surprising that the numbers swell. It is becoming increasingly costly in our day to, to call people to believe the true gospel with all of its implications for disciples to deny themselves, take up the cross daily, and to follow Jesus. At some point, though, people begin to realize, uh, just like all those Gentiles realize, there's something really badly wrong with this world. And I need the stability that these people that I know who believe the gospel have. Your responsibility 
is not to win people to Jesus. You get the privilege to win people to Jesus, like Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 9. But it's God's responsibility to, to bring the fruit. Your responsibility is to faithfully share the gospel. It begins with this heart of compassion that sees people as God sees them, and it ends with trusting in God for the results. Let's pray. Well, Father, we're thankful that you reached down and snatched us from the edge of destruction, whether it was a life like mine that clearly was headed for awful consequences of the ways that I believed and lived in those days, or whether it was a person among us who is the most kind, caring, most dutiful person in the world. Without Christ, all of us are doomed. We're condemned already. But Lord, this beautiful news that Jesus died. And that you received his sacrifice as the perfect sacrifice. This beautiful news is ours when we believe. Call us to repentance and faith in Christ. And Lord, call us as you have to share this good news with everyone. Help us to meet people where they are just like you meet us, every one of us where they are. Help us to affirm wherever we can their direction toward the truth and then may we give the beautiful news that Jesus died and rose again it's in his name we pray amen may the love of the Father God and the grace of the Son Jesus and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit be with you all all God's people said Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.